Scene, Spring 2018. Hey, Amanda, how's your Def Leppard podcast doing? What's it called again? Little Miss Innocent. Actually, it's been really fun, but I've found that my download numbers are dropping off because it's just getting difficult to find new things to say about rock, rock till you drop. But what about you? How's Mighty Morphin Power Bangers going? Banging. I just finished my five-part series about Ariana Grande's Break Free featuring Lord Zed. Oh, those hot heroes should have quit while they were in one piece. John, how about your podcast? How has Tank Talk been? You know, actually, I'm having the same problem as Amanda. There are only so many armadillo tanks out there, and it's hard to find a new one to talk about every week. It might be time to give it up. Ben, you have a podcast too, right? I don't think you've ever told us what it's about or even the name. Guess it's time to come clean. I'm the host of The Moody's Blue, featuring all of the worst Moody Blues songs, which is to say all of them. <gasps> I keep getting all this hate mail, though. A lot of it postmarked from Canada. A lot of it. So it might be time to start something new. Hey, why don't we get together and start a new super podcast? You know, that sounds all right, since it seems like most of us have hit the end of the line. What should we call it? This is Discord and Rhyme. That'll never work. Everybody, welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums song by song. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and generally where podcasts are found. And you can find show notes and our full episode archive at our website, discordpod.com. Roll call, Ben Marlin. Amanda Rogers. Rich Bennell. And John McFerrin. Ben, I want more enthusiasm on the roll call next time. <laughs> we have a new Patreon donor to thank this week. Marianne, we really appreciate it when people sign up for a monthly donation. It helps offset the time and operating costs we put into the show. And also, you get some bonus content on the side. Yeah, we've got eight bonus episodes in the vault now, and we're about to record ones on Tears for Fears and, at long last, Carly Rae Jepsen. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's time to turn it over to this week's host, Amanda. What album do you have for us, Amanda? We are going to do the Traveling Wilburys debut album, Volume 1. Nice. And why did you pick this album? Well, for a couple of reasons. There are so many heavy hitters that we love and would like to talk about, but either they're way too obvious and there's just nothing new to say, or else they're waiting around in scheduling limbo in our gigantic list of upcoming episodes. But lucky for us, there's this supergroup called the Traveling Wilburys, so we can combine half a dozen of them into one episode. Very efficient. <laughs> it is. We're all about efficiency here. It's why our episodes are always under 45 minutes. <laughs> mm -hmm. And why our master spreadsheet has like nine tabs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other reason is because my mom has been listening to the podcast and the, the Def Leppard episode brought back horrible memories for her of when I used to shut myself in my room and blast Animal way too loud. So I figured I better throw her a bone. So hi, mom. <laughs> 
And uh, Amanda, what is your history with traveling Wilburys? Uh, well, it's all due to my mom, really. She had both of the Wilburys albums on cassette when I was a kid, and we listened to them a lot. And at the time, we all preferred Volume 3, actually, so that's the one I know the best. Um, she used to blast She's My Baby to get us out of bed on Saturday mornings to do all the housework, so I hated that song for a really long time. <laughs> and my brother and I used to try our very best to do the Wilbury twist, which is not actually possible. <laughs> and... You know, my mind was blown when I realized that the George Harrison who sang Got My Mind Set on You and was in the Traveling Wilburys was the same George Harrison who was in the Beatles. Because <laughs> to the extent that I thought about the individual Beatles at all in the late 80s, early 90s, I guess I assumed they were all dead because the 60s were the distant past to me back then. <laughs> So I've I've loved these albums for a really long time, and I still do really love Volume 3, but after I finally bought both of them for myself in about 1999, I realized that Volume 1 really is the better album. I know both of them inside out, don't it make you want to twist and shout, and I absolutely adore them both, but since this was the one that introduced the Wilburys to the world, this is the one we're talking about. Nice. John, what's your history with the Wilburys? It's actually pretty short. Um... One of the reasons that I keep my website going is because it forces me to listen to albums that I really should get around to, but that I otherwise wouldn't because I do nothing but listen to Genesis and King Crimson bootlegs all day. Uh, <laughs> so last year, I got around to writing a Tom Petty page, and I decided, you know what? I haven't gone around to the Wilburys. I've known about them for 20 years. I may as well stick them on this page, and I'll, I'll write about them. And sure enough, I liked the two albums more than I anticipated. Um, I definitely prefer the first one to the third, but they're both a lot of fun. And as soon as Amanda said that she wanted to do this album, I immediately jumped in and said, yes, yes, I want to talk about this one. Nice. And Rich, how about you? Well, like John, I don't really have much of a personal history with the Traveling Wilburys themselves, per se. Uh, and as far as the individual members of the Traveling Wilburys, I, I'm also, I think I'm pretty firmly in fourth place on this panel as far as being familiar with like Bob Dylan Etc. Uh, but insofar as I know the Wilburys, I get it. Like I actually got into them by way of Tom Petty, specifically when I got his playback box set, which was released in 1995. Uh, my dad impulse bought it for me, and it was it's a really good way to get into Tom Petty because it has like the best half of all of his albums through 1991, mm. uh, and. <laughs> And the best half of every Tom Petty album yeah. is a really <laughs> solid set of songs. Uh, but I also read the yeah. liner notes, which talked about the Traveling Wilburys as part of like the history segment and just like um, how it was connected to his Full Moon Fever album. And uh, so it's only been in the course of preparing for this episode uh, where I've actually like listened to this album over and over again. But like uh, I've always like thought of them as kind of like this Tom Petty offshoot, strangely enough. Uh, but on a personal note, I've been doing some traveling of my own, actually. Um, <laughs> we, yeah, we recently moved from Michigan to Connecticut, and uh, this made for some good driving music, I have to say. Yeah. It is. I'm a classic rock fan, so I go way back with all these guys. Uh, I was actually almost in the Wilburys, but then they went with Orbison because it's all just a popularity <laughs> contest. Whatever. <laughs> I'm still a fan of all of them to some extent, uh, very much George Harrison, and then to varying extents, the other guys. Tom Petty is great. Everyone loves Tom Petty. And I lived in Gainesville for a long time, so I have that connection with him, although he does not know about our connection, or he did not know about our connection. Well, you were also an original member of Mudcrutch, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm the one guy they ditched and then just turned it into the Heartbreakers. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Jeff Lynn is great. Bob Dylan is brilliant, though. I don't really listen to him for pleasure too much. And uh, admittedly, I only know Roy Orbison from the big radio hits. But I mean, he's got an iconic voice. Uh, so it was a sure thing that I would like this album when I heard it for the first time. It's catchy and lighthearted, and it's most of all fun. Uh, the Traveling Wilburys are five guys who had every right to take themselves seriously, and they never did. And it's such a breath of fresh air. So, Amanda, can you give us a, a background on the Traveling Wilburys? I would love to. <laughs> Your hand on your head, hand on your head, put your foot in the air, foot in the air. Then you hop around the room, hop around the room, in your underwear, in your underwear. There ain't never been nothing quite like this. Come on, baby, it's the Wilbury Twist. The Traveling Wilburys are a super group with a capital I, consisting of <laughs> George Harrison of the Beatles. Here comes the sun. I say, it's alright. Jeff Lynn of Electric Light Orchestra. Oh, Mr. Blue Sky, please tell us why you had to hide away for so long. Bob Dylan of Bob Dylan. Of complete unknown. <laughs> like a rolling stone. Tom Petty of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And Roy Orbison of Roy Orbison. Now, back in our message board days, like 20 odd years ago, we always used to be like, well, one of these things is not like the others, Hmm. you know, referring to Jeff Lynn. And that's because we were a bunch of assholes back then. (laughs) (laughs) I never said that. I was always right. I I have some real thoughts on that this time. (laughs) I do too. I mean, he's he belongs there. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, they had all been pals in various combinations for many years. And in 1987, Jeff Lynn produced George Harrison's solo album, Cloud Night. I got my mind set on you. I got my mind set on you. I got my mind set on you. Got my mind set on you. But it's gonna take money. Which is very, very good. And that album did well. It was his most successful since All Things Must Pass. And so the record label asked if George would record a new song to use as the B-side to the European single release of the song This Is Love. And around this time, George was in L.A. having lunch with Jeff Lynne and Roy Orbison. You know, as you do when you're in L.A. I see them every time I'm out there. (laughs) And he mentioned to them that he had to write this new song on short notice. And so he asked Jeff to produce it and Roy to sing on it. Because, you know, if you can get Roy Orbison to sing on your single, you get Roy Orbison to sing (laughs) on your single. And then it turned out there weren't any studios available the next day. So George says, oh, I bet Bob would let us use his home studio. And oh, whoops, I left my guitar at Tom's house. I'll ask him over too. Oopsie doopsie. So the next day, the five of them are hanging out in Bob Dylan's garage and at first, he was just the host. The other four are sitting around coming up, up coming up with lyrics for this song that George had kind of written the, the framework for. And Bob Dylan is over at the barbecue making lunch for everybody. Until after a while, George says to him, well, you're the famous lyricist around here. In fact, I hear you're going to win a Nobel Prize for it in about 30 years. Get over here and give us a hand with this. <laughs> so Bob says, well, OK, what's the title? 
George looks around the garage, sees a packing box and says, uh, handle with care. Hair toss. Yeah. (laughs) So they got a basic recording done that day uh, with Jeff Lynn on drums. They had called Jim Keltner, but he wasn't available. And then did some overdubs later on in a proper studio. And it was crystal clear immediately that the song was way too good to be wasted on a European B-side. So then, in the tradition of friend groups since the beginning of time, these five guys said, hey, we should start a band! (laughs) And they actually did it. And because they were all goofballs, either secretly like Bob Dylan or openly like George Harrison, they could not just use their own identities. So they made up this fictional family of half-brothers. Their father was a traveling salesman, I think, and they all had different mothers. They picked out pseudonyms. They were Nelson, Otis, Charlie Jr., Lefty, and Lucky. And session drummer Jim Keltner was dubbed Buster Sideberry. And there's a just a whole set of mythology about this. There's a wonderful quote from Roy, Roy Orbison where he says, You know, they always called Daddy a cat and a bounder, but I remember him as a Baptist minister. <laughs> uh, their real names don't actually appear anywhere in the liner notes, and all the songs are just credited to the Traveling Wilburys. But you can tell from the publishing credits who primarily wrote what, if you're interested in that. In fact, uh, it was only recently when they found out who they actually were. (laughs) It was the residents. Yeah. (laughs) It was King Crimson this whole time. I got to imagine it was George Harrison who said, oh, this is all a lot of fun, but I don't want anybody else getting the publishing royalties when I wrote the song. So (laughs) so he divvied it up. He was really the mover and shaker about this. And if you watch that documentary about him, what was it called? Living in the Material World, I think, which was a wonderful movie. Uh, If you ignore the parts, it's very unfair to Patty Boyd. There's a good section in it about how the Wilburys formed. And he talks about how he enjoyed being a solo artist, but what he always liked the best was being in a band. So he was really thrilled about getting his pals together and just being a part of a band again. and Also, I'm sure being a Wilbur, it was way more fun than being a Beatle. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> Especially when you're the Beatle in the Wilburys. Yeah. Yeah, you know, man, talk about pulling rank. <laughs> he could make jokes about how, about being a Beatle and he'd just sit back and go, well, I guess he had to be there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's talk about what happened next. They solve mysteries, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I just got to say, who the F is Jim Keltner to get a call like, hey, Jim, Bob Dylan, Tom Petty, Roy Orbison, <laughs> Jeff Lynn, and one of the Beatles need you or they want to pay you to play drums. Oh, I'm busy today. Sorry. Okay. Uh, he, he was drumming for Paul McCartney that day, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's time to go track by track through Traveling Wilburys Volume 1. But first, if you have any questions or feedback about Discord and Rhyme, or just want to tell us how great we are, which we never have a problem with, we're on both Twitter and Instagram at DiscordPod, and you can email us at discordpod at gmail.com. Also, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, it would help spread the word if you left us a rating or review. And if you're not, tell your friends and family about the show. Post links to our episodes and website on social media, or recommend us to a record store clerk from behind your favorite mask. And with that, time for the album. So let's go with the first track, Handle With Care. They're the original odd couple. Being beat up and battered 
Listen up and I've been shut down You're the best thing that I've ever found Handle me with care Reputation's changeable Situation's terrible best album openers I know and it is a fantastic sort of opening credits for the album you you start off with George Harrison and then hey wait is that Roy Orbison and then hang on that can't possibly be Bob Dylan can it (laughs) and who's that doing all those nice harmonies back there I mean it is absolutely wonderful and speaking of Bob Dylan I would really like to commend whoever it was who came up with the idea to have him and Orbison sing the everybody's got somebody part together their voices could not be less similar. And it ends up sounding like honey poured over sandpaper. (laughs) Is Tom Petty on that part too? I feel like I hear him there. He is. But when you get to the second part, like if you listen when they sing and dream on, you can really hear Orbison there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It sounds so good. Now, as a song, I suppose there's nothing like super remarkable or virtuosic about it, but that is perfectly fine because what the song is aces at is making me happy. This style of recording, this particular guitar sound, that combination of voices and those charming lyrics just fill my heart with joy. And I would not trade any of that for the most complicated Robert Fripp solo in the world. (laughs) Well, I never. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I absolutely love this song and I always have. I don't know anyone who doesn't like Handle With Care. Uh, There is a video for this song, too, and it's good. It's mostly just the band standing around a microphone performing the song, but it's really interestingly shot. And let's face it, all these guys were looking really good during this time period. Mm -hmm. Even Roy Orbison, who looks way cooler in tinted horn-rimmed glasses than any human really has a right to. And at the very end of the video, they're all sitting in front of a train car waiting to leave, and that will pay off later. Yeah, I like when Roy Orbison steps up in that video. It's like he's stepping in from another dimension, which kind of just yes. sums up his contributions to this album in general. Yeah, because he's dressed like it's still 1957. Rich, what do you think of this one? Well, I think that this song is basically the definition of more than the sum of its parts. And I, and I mean that by like, it's one of the songs that like actually illustrates how that cliche plays out mechanically. Uh, so I'm going to draw in a video game reference here, but it's a Super Nintendo one. So you guys might know it. Um, so do you, do you guys know the game ActRaiser? No. Nope. Well, nope. so... <laughs> nope. No. Nope. Fine. Well, anyway, it came yes. out in the early 90s. <laughs> we already did that yeah, Simpsons reference. Oh. Half of it is a mediocre god game where you, like, uh, help a civilization come about, but in the, the other half of it is a mediocre action game where you go down and fight monsters within that civilization. Now, I wouldn't play either of these games by themselves, but somehow together they form just the most magical experience. I love playing it, and... That's kind of how Handled with Care comes together for me, like, honestly, as a song. Like, neither of these three parts are uh, are extraordinary on their own, but somehow strung together, they're just wonderful. 
Mm-hmm. I've compared Handle with Care to ActRaiser now. Phil will love that. <laughs> he will. Yeah, it's also kind of an oddly structured song when you break it down. Like, it's not your standard verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus structure. Instead, right. it's like, instead it's a single progression twice, uh, which is one of my favorite pop song structures, uh, like A, B, C, A, solo, A, B, C, A. Mm. Like, you liked it the first time? Well, here's the encore, <laughs> and we're done. Yeah. It's yeah. so efficient. Yeah. And it, I don't think it even really has a chorus, except for the phrase, handle me with care. I think that's mm-hmm. the closest it really gets. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I didn't think that I would have like so much to say about the structure of handle with care. It sounds like such a simple, friendly song. And it mm-hmm. is. It is. John, how about you? Yeah, this one's a blast. Um, with songs on this album, I tend to judge and rate them uh, according to two main criteria. So one is how much do I feel that the song benefits from the magic of this particular group being together to make it so that it's something that none of them could come up with individually? And two, how much fun do I think that this would be to sing in karaoke? <laughs> um, and this, oh, so I actually did sing this at our, our karaoke party last year. Oh, you this did. is so much fun because, especially because you get to do the drastic shift between the Orbis and, oh, I'm so tired of... And, and like the, the operatic and, and immediately go into everybody <laughs> to lean on. Just like the, the, the shifts back and forth are a blast. Mm-hmm. The hyper articulate uh, George Harrison verses are also fun to sing. Like yes. those L's handle me with care. Like kind <laughs> yeah. of slithery. Like you get it. You, you get to like do a, a fun imitation of all of them at, at, at different points. And yeah, it's it, it makes me cheery every time I hear it. Every time you know I'm in the car and get to uh, to just sing along loudly to this one. Yeah, this this is one of the clear standouts of the album for me. Definitely. Yeah, what an incredibly crappy song. Oh wait, <laughs> these are my notes about uh, Doctor Livingston. I presume uh, these are for a different podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> <You're still doing laughs> Handle with care. Uh, We're all I, looking for some. <laughs> <laughs> I love this song. It's not my absolute number one traveling Wilburys song, but it's the most traveling Wilburys song. Uh, it doesn't innovate. Yeah. And while it rocks, it doesn't rock too much. It's just crisp and sunny and insanely likable. And I, I, lo- I agree with everything Amanda said about it. It's just about how happy it makes her. Um, I can't overstate the power of the five group members' personalities on this and every other song. You know, they're great singers and they can convey emotion as well as anybody out there. Maybe not Bob Dylan. But but on the other hand, these are the acts we've known for all these years and we've loved them the whole time. So this is like hearing old friends and that's a powerful feeling. And this has been brought up before, but there's just something mind-blowing about the basic concept of the album. You know, you're saying George Harrison from the Beatles knows Bob Dylan, who knows the guy from ELO, who knows rock legend Tom Petty, and they all know Roy freaking Orbison, and they're all singing together for us? It's so much to take, but in the best way. It makes an otherwise small song incredibly huge. And I don't think the line is a reference, but I highly recommend the 1957 film noir Sweet Smell of Success starring Burt Lancaster and Tony (laughs) Curtis. Then again, uh, George Harrison was a big movie fan. I mean, he like put up his house as collateral for the Monty Python movie, right? Which I'm sure was worth it. Oh, and also we should take this opportunity to to clarify. If you watch the music video for this song, it is very clear that in the second verse, George Harrison has been fobbed off. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not the other word that we all thought he was saying all this time. 
I thought he dropped an F-bomb, too, for the longest time. Oh. Yep. Long time. Yep. <laughs> oh, this song sucks now. I'm out of here. In fact, I found there's a cover of Handle With Care by Jenny Lewis. I listened to it. I hated it. <laughs> and she thought it was the F-word, too. <laughs> I never caught that. I don't know. I guess I didn't realize what he was saying. So let's go on to the next song, Dirty World. He loves your sexy body. He loves your dirty mind. He loves when you hold him. Grab him from behind. oh man that song just cracks me up bob dylan was for sure the one who most bought into the wilbury alter ego this is almost the only place where he ever seems like he's having any fun Mm. my knowledge of dylan is relatively broad but it's not deep so I could be wrong here, but I rarely, if ever, hear any joy in his music. And mm. honestly, it's one of the reasons I don't really like listening to him all that much. Because it almost seems to me like he's playing his songs out of a sense of duty rather than any real pleasure in it. So it is a ton of fun to hear him just being silly like this. <laughs> the closest I can think of of his own songs is I Want You, which is kind of goofy, but in a way that sounds like he's trying really hard. But Dirty World just sounds effortless. The lyrics here are genuinely really funny and make very little sense. Hmm. If you need your oil changed, I'll do it for you free. And let me drive your pickup truck and park it where the sun don't shine. Those are fantastic lines. (laughs) I don't really know exactly what they even mean, but I don't care. They just this whole song is indefinably smutty in a way that just cracks me up. And that's really the point. You know, they're sending up the whole idea of dirty double entendres and song lyrics, and they do it brilliantly. At the end, in the he loves your et cetera, et cetera section, they all took turns coming up with random phrases that fit the meter and made as little sense as possible as sexual metaphors. (laughs) And I seem to remember hearing somewhere that they did it on the spot, but I don't know if that's actually true, and I kind of doubt it. But however it happened, the result is wonderful. And he loves your parts and service is genuinely amazing. He loves your trembling Wilbury. He loves your marble evenings. He loves your bucket curtains. He loves your power steering. He loves your bottled water. He loves your parts and service. I love this song. I think it's great. Yeah, I mean, this isn't the best song, but it's likable and it doesn't overstay its welcome. And I like hearing Bob Dylan be funny. Uh, It's a little off because Bob Dylan's always a little off. He's like a brilliant space alien. His humor isn't going to line up with Earth humor 100%, uh, but I always appreciate the effort. 
Yeah, it feels like friendly cartoon Dylan to me. Like, this feels like a cartoonier version of, specifically of uh, Stuck Outside a Mobile with the Memphis Blues again from Blonde on Blonde. Or, or, or maybe this is just like a general type of Dylan song that there are multiple copies of. I don't know. But I, I mostly just love the lyrics like you guys. So literally every car song ever written is a sex song, <laughs> with the exception of our car club by the Beach Boys, which as far as I can tell is actually about their car club. I checked. Yeah. And how they want to yeah. just wipe out the other clubs. It's mm-hmm. kind of violent. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, but I love that ending where the Wilburys managed to hit on all of the mundane metaphors that everyone else never got around to, like fuel <laughs> injection, five-speed gearbox, power steering, service yeah. charge. <laughs> Plus, it's a chance for all of them to pop in and out of the song. Phrasing. <laughs> John, what about you? Yeah, I, I like this one. Um, at first, when I'm listening to it, I feel like it, it feels a bit to me like a throwaway with just some smutty innuendo. But then what ends up happening is that the smutty innuendo gets really strange. <laughs> and it just kind of just starts compounding on itself. It's like a, a smutty snowball rolling down a hill. And... <laughs> I would um, argue a bit against the idea that Dylan isn't funny or doesn't have fun. He 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 does when he goes out when he allows himself to. There are actually um, quite a few recordings of not just studio but also live where mm. like he's a blast. Yeah, yeah you just, know he does it far better than I do. But it's a, a face that he's very. Um, he, he he makes a conscious choice of whether or not he wants to show that side to the world. If that he wants to put on, if he wants to put on his mask, his funny mask, he'll do that. And if he wants to put on a serious mask, he'll put that one on. Mm. But here, he's, you know, I think about just back to the idea that you know this whole project started while he was grilling meat. Yeah, <laughs> and like there, there there's a, there's just a a sense of self deflating non seriousness just baked into everything. And it really really comes through on this song, and he's he's clearly treating this as you know what. I've been trying to be serious and somber in my last couple of albums. And it didn't really work. So I'm just going to try and have fun with my pals yeah. and just see what happens. And it really works well. Yeah. So yeah, I, I enjoy this one. It's not one of my absolute favorites on the album, but it's a crack up. All right, let's go on to the next song, Rattled.
a fun little rockabilly number featuring Jeff Lynn doing his very best Jerry Lee Lewis impression, but presumably without murdering any of his wives. <laughs> this isn't one of the best songs here, but I like it a lot. The rhythm and the energy are fantastic, mostly thanks to the rhythm section. Uh, there's a great bass line going on back there. And also that little growl after the chorus is one of the best parts of the album, if you ask me. The weakest part of the song, I think, is actually Jeff's singing. Because the best description I can think of for Jeff Lynn's voice is nondescript. Yeah, he, he kind of reminds me of yeah. John. Yeah, he kind of reminds me of John Lodge in that he's an he's a really great backup singer, but not the most charismatic lead singer. Although he's much better at lead than Lodge ever was, I'll give him that for sure. He's not a bad singer at all, and I think he's a great Wilbury. But he, I don't know. He's just he's less good than the other guys. <laughs> I didn't realize this was Jeff Lynne. I assumed that this had to be Roy Orbison because of the rockabilly style. But I didn't take into account that if Roy Orbison had actually sung this song, he would have crushed it. So why didn't Roy Orbison sing this song? (laughs) I have been wondering that, too, because he's he's Mr. Rockabilly in this band. I really couldn't tell you. Does Lynn get a lead vocal, like a clear lead vocal anywhere else on the album, though? Maybe they were just trying to go out of their way to have make sure that at least everyone had at least one song where they were the primary feature. Could be. Well, I consider like one song on the album, the clear Jeff Lynn song, but we'll get to that later. Uh, but yeah, I think the John Lodge comparison is great, though. I think that the difference is that with ELO, Lynn was always singing lead. So he had to like devise this entire sort of composite style to accommodate his 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 vocals with like overdubs mm-hmm. and synths yeah. uh, that he mostly isn't able to rely on with this album. So mm-hmm. it just leaves the so- a song like this feeling kind of floaty. But yeah. I mean, it isn't bad. I would never skip this song. And this is mixed totally differently from how ELO ever was. His vocals tend to be yeah. kind of buried on the ELO albums. Mm-hmm. It's front and center here. Yeah. No, it's it's a minor song. It's not ponderous, and it doesn't stick around long enough to bother you, but I wouldn't say it's in my top eight or nine songs on the album. Um, <laughs> Jeff Lynne is always more convincing, at least to me, as a pop guy than as a rock and roller. I like, like for instance, I like Mr. Blue Sky a lot more than I like Don't Bring Me Down, Groose. Uh, but I like that he was trying to cut loose a little here. 50s rock was really important to these guys, and for Roy Orbison at least, it was his job for several years. Um, and I like hearing them indulge their love for that music. John, what about you? Yeah, something on this album has to be last. And <laughs> yeah. For me, this is. But he, but here's here's the thing. Uh, some positive things I would say for this. One is that I would point out that basic-ish rock and roll was not entirely foreign. To Lynn, because thing to remember is that before Lynn was a member, was the lead man for ELO, he was also a member of the Move. Hmm. So th- this is deep in his past. Like he's, he, this isn't completely foreign to him. And the, you know, there's some interesting little details uh, in the arrangements. I like uh, some of the touches of piano buried in there that that are deployed to give it a nice little extra bit of oomph in good spots. And yeah, there are there are lots of other little fun details that he's doing his best just to spice this up in whatever little ways he can throw it, throw at it. But it's still such a basic song at its core that it, it sticks out a little bit as not being as interesting necessarily as the other ones on here. So I like it. I would never skip it. Um, but there's a lot of other songs here that I like more, namely nine of them. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's go on to the next song. Last night. Thank you. 
that I would put last mm. on the album. I like Rattled way more than this. Um, it, it's not a bad song. It's just not that interesting to me, except for the parts where Roy Orbison comes in and things get sinister. <laughs> but honestly, I I don't know that I really have anything to say about this one. It is a perfectly fine Traveling Wilbury song, no more and no less. Yeah, this isn't a deep song, but I like it a lot. I think more than Amanda does. You know, it's just the guys having fun, and I like that. And dig that bouncy bass line played by secret mm-hmm. Wilbury weapon Jeff Lynn. Jeff filled in a lot of holes that might otherwise have existed in the music. He made sure that everyone's brilliant, lovable, pot-fueled ideas turned into actual records with harmonies and bass lines and, yes, insanely compressed drums. Without Jeff, the traveling Wilburys might have existed on a few legendary skeletal bootleg recordings making their way around YouTube. Thanks to Jeff Lynn, we've got this awesome album to talk about. Mm-hmm. John, what do you think? It's weird. Like I, I feel like this isn't that much of a song, and yet I enjoy it quite a bit. I said at the top that I judge the songs on here largely by how much fun do I think this would be to sing in karaoke. <laughs> and the thing is, like, I feel like this one almost feels less like a song and something that they just wrote specifically for their own karaoke parties. <laughs> like. <laughs> They're just like, okay, we're just we're just gonna do this one while we're standing around. Like a couple people are 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 belting this out while other people are, you know, drinking and, and grilling meat. Um <laughs> yeah. plus the, the lyrics are very silly. And they're like they're I mean the, the, the whole story that's buried in it of of the main character getting robbed by a girl he's trying to pick up. Like I missed it like the first five times I listened to this song. I dug <laughs> it and it's like that's okay, they wrote this. All right, fine. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 not much. It certainly pales in comparison, for instance, what's coming up next. But I I think it's a delight. I like that you call it a party song because to me it's like the soundtrack to the background of a certain like brand of '80s movie scene, specifically yeah. the late '80s. Like very much. Uh, the scene is always like a bunch of white people on the top of an office building or a boat or something. <laughs> They're all dressed in white. There's always a bunch of like pink drinks and stuff, uh, and there's always like dinky music like this playing in the background, like Caribbean influenced music. I imagine many khaki shorts. <laughs> it's yeah, true. Yeah. Exactly. We're so lame. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but uh, despite that description, the song has always been one of my favorites. I totally stand really? for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, not like one of my absolute favorites on the album. I, I would say it's I would say it's in the top half, but uh, oh. I've never actually made a list. But I think that I gravitate toward it because it's the only Tom Petty lead. And mm. yeah, 
Yeah, it, this is the Tom Petty song on the album, even though it's like ludicrously simple. Like usually I dock points for songs if I feel like I could have written it. And this is, <laughs> this is a case. This is one of those cases. Uh, but it, it just works for me. It also gives kind of a positive sense of the direction Lynn was pushing Tom Petty in at this point, because like this isn't much of a song, uh, but it completely destroys most of his previous album. Let me up open parentheses. I've had enough close parentheses. <laughs> All right. Let's go on to something that I imagine Amanda likes a little more. Uh, not alone anymore. What? Maybe just a little. Hmm. seriously how how in the world somebody who smoked approximately 84 million cigarettes in his life could maintain that Hmm. heavenly operatic tenor is beyond me you'd think he would have wrecked his voice in the style of Joni mitchell and brian wilson but nope he just he sounds just as beautiful as ever but more mature and it's just remarkable and now in terms of recording they actually had a little bit of trouble putting this one together The basic tracks for all of these songs were laid down in L.A. in David Stewart's kitchen of Eurythmics fame. He had previously helped Tom Petty with Don't Come Around Here No More. For this one, Roy recorded his vocal in another room and just knocked everybody's socks off with it. Jeff Lynn once said something like, while they're just like hanging out writing songs, he's your buddy Roy. But then as soon as he got behind a microphone, suddenly he was Roy Orbison and everybody remembered, oh yeah, this is that guy we've been idolizing for most of our lives. <laughs> and Lynn has also said that the initial arrangement they had for the song just was not living up to that vocal performance, which of course blew everybody's minds. So later on, he and George Harrison went to back to England and did overdubs and finished everything up at uh, Harrison's home studio. So they just, they deleted everything except for the vocal and the drum track. They had been playing along with a drum machine in Dave Stewart's kitchen and put in a whole new guitar part that suddenly just brought the song together. And then they, you know, added in real drums and filled out the rest of the arrangement. And he and Harrison also added in the backing vocals. Now, I don't know whose brainwave it was to put that long descending noise at the beginning and periodically throughout the song, but or even what the hell that is. It's some kind of synth, I would guess. I assume it's an organ. Okay, whatever it is, it is brilliant, and it gets your attention right from the jump. This whole instrumental track just slaps. Mm-hmm. And there's that that busy but not distracting bass, also played by Jeff Lynn, who is a damn one-man band. The minimal guitars and the little bits of organ and piano, they're really just there to provide some chord changes and to set off Roy's voice, which is exactly what this song needs. 
And then we get to the very end where Roy ascends to an impossibly high note on the last anymore while that downward spiraling synth line happens again and the drums start getting a little crumbly. It's like he's just breaking into pieces and it is brilliant. That's so good. And finally, we were speaking of King Crimson earlier. Adrian Ballou, of all people, covered this on his album Young Lions, and it's okay. It's fine. yourself to Roy Orbison like why put that out there I mean, there's right cover a Dylan song like everybody else <laughs> yeah Orbison sings beautifully here because of course he does that that's really all he knew how to do it's kind of a limited approach if you ask me Ooh, another stunning <laughs> vocal performance from Roy Orbison just doing what he always does boring nah one trick pony <laughs> not boring awesome and Amanda, that was a great description of the song, too. It, it gave me Thanks. more of an appreciation for the song. Rich, what do you think of it? Well, to the extent that Traveling Wilburys Volume 1 is a Roy Orbison delivery service, which it too often is not, uh, this is the only song where the other Wilburys get out of his way completely. And mm-hmm. on that merit alone, it's the best song on the album. Yeah. Yeah. Like apparently just working in the same room as Roy Orbison was just unreal to the rest of them. And we're talking about Bob Dylan and a Beatle here. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, but he's the music they listened to and looked up to as teenagers. And it's it's disarming to me that even they can geek out like that. Yeah, yeah. He, he's the OG rock star in this mm-hmm. band. Yeah. And I also listened to the uh, the posthumous Roy Oberson album, Mystery Girl, or, or most of it. And mm-hmm. this song handily defeats most of that album. It, yeah. it, it's worth listening to. But like the, this strikes me as like the platonic ideal of a Roy Oberson song in 1989 or 88, I guess, is this album. Yeah. John, what do you think of it? Uh, it's so good. <laughs> uh, what I, I mentioned uh, earlier, how I I grade songs on here. One was on the karaoke potential, but the other is like, how much do I feel it, that it benefits from the magic of this group of musicians being together? Like this is one where it feels like the others are basically rooting for him to have his moment. Like it almost sets up like they're just like, what can we do? To, to have like one awesome Orbison song in place just to be able to maximize him. Like what it reminds me of is I've uh, been a follower of the NBA for like 30 years at this point. And, and something that happens a lot every, every so often is you'll have this thing where like in the playoffs, there'll be like some old player maybe it once been great, but maybe a little washed up, but he'll be put in at a critical moment and then he'll just start catching fire. And what happens is like other 
like players on the court on his team will just like really really get into the fact that like he's do this old guy is doing really really well and they'll just start feeding him and feeding him and feeding him and and like they're just cheering on the fact that they're able to be present for that i i kind of feel like that sort of sensation when i listen to this song it feels like lynn is just out of his mind deliriously happy that he was able to set this up for orbison everybody else seems to be doing their best to just uh Again, make this his his vehicle, mm-hmm. and yeah, there's all the specific little details again that 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 descending fairground organ, uh, as as the downward contrast, especially when he soars. Oh, it's so good. Oh yeah, and yeah, I I, I, I I'm not that familiar with Orbison. I've never um, bothered with the album that that Rich has mentioned. I, I know a, a handful of his other songs, but yeah, this would be my favorite of his that that I've heard thus far. It's it's just fantastic. Roy Herbison likes to think about his whole life before he performs. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure Roy Orbison was excited to be in the studio with Jeff Lynn too. So just, just to be fair. All right. We've made it to the next song. Congratulations. And the next side. in the group let's let bob dylan sing another song yeah well bob dylan is quote unquote the lead singer of the wolverines oh is he really i feel like i read that but i don't know yeah he has three leads on here doesn't he yeah believe in me and need this morning i looked out my window and found a bluebird singing but is Bob Dylan being miserable and sarcastic, <laughs> but somehow, once again, in a way that makes it sound like he's enjoying himself. And I'm sure the arrangement has something to do with that. This is not a typical arrangement of a Bob Dylan song, uh, but the way he sings it ends up sounding like more lighthearted than he generally tended to be, at least from what I've heard. Like, And I like the contrast between the verses and the chorus. So the verses are like really sad and mopey, but the chorus is more like, screw you, I'm going home. And for that reason, I, I like this one a lot. It's definitely the least of the three Dylan tracks on here, but it's a good song. It's fine. Um, <laughs> it sounds like uh, a song from his 1989 album, Oh Mercy. Is that good or bad? It's fine. I like it more than I used to. <laughs> uh, but it, like, it sounds exactly like something that could have fit on there, uh, um, except that the production is Lynn instead of Daniel Lenoir. It's fine. It's a good uh, mid-tempo ballad that I find somewhat memorable. It's hard for me to say that much more than that. I like the lyrics are are interesting. They're not among his best. They're not among his worst. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 kind of just like a table setter song for the other material for me on this album. Yeah, and I should make it more clear than I did before that when it comes to the rest of Bob Dylan's repertoire, I am speaking from a place of vast ignorance. So please set me straight when I'm wrong. 
you know his greatest hits. Yeah, like, that's I fine know, for most like, people. Some, somewhat more than that, but not. Sure. I, I know a small fraction of Bob Dylan's material. You're, I you're say. forgiven for not having encyclopedic knowledge of 80s Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> I've got encyclopedic knowledge of Elvis Presley. That'll. It, that's go. that's what t- is taking up all of my brain. I don't have any more room left for Bob Dylan. <laughs> Rich. Well, I don't care about dissing on Bob Dylan's songs and pissing off his fans. And this is pretty easily my least favorite song on the album. It's one of those songs where it opens. And I think, is this really what the whole song is going to be like? And yep, yep, (laughs) yep, it is. And for three freaking minutes. Yeah. Like after soaring along with Roy on the last song, this like you get sarcastic clapping Bob on this one. Not a fan. Don't like it. (laughs) That is fair. Yeah, the one thing I'll say, like, for any songs we don't like on here, for the most part, they don't go on that long. So, they, yes. they mm-hmm. you know, there's no, like, four or five minute songs or very few of them. So, even if you don't like yeah, this. That was like 35 minutes. It's true. Yeah. It's really not that bad. Yeah. I mean, I like this one. It's everything's right there on the surface. It's it's not deep, but it's got a sweet melodic surface. And Dylan sings it affectingly and what sounds like vulnerably or at least as close as he gets to that as john pointed out everything's a mask to some extent uh but i like the song this might have been clouded by my experience listening to it in the car because as soon as it started my wife was like (laughs) (laughs) that was like listening me and denise listening to killer by alice cooper in the car she was a real sport all right let's head for the light with the next song i won't say the title love hearing him happy oh it's great isn't it <laughs> and not insulting paul mccartney for a few minutes <laughs> see what i mean about jeff lynn's backing vocals yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah he's awesome Imagine if they'd had John Lodge in this band. <laughs> the two great JLs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see nothing new, but I feel a lot of change. And I get the strangest feeling. The other guys in the band all bought into the Wilbury persona to varying degrees, but George Harrison was like, I am the Ur Wilbury. I'm just going to do whatever I want. So what we have here is really just a solo George Harrison song, but it is a very, very good solo George Harrison song. I love this one so much. It is a really happy song about returning to God or your deity of choice after falling away for a while, although it could be interpreted a number of other ways, as most good art can. It is happy and bouncy and joyful, which is absolutely appropriate for the subject matter. Plus, George's voice was the strongest during this period than it would ever be. 
And then you've got, you know, Jeff Lynne's wonderful backing vocals, and there's a multi-tracked Roy Orbison way in the background, sounding like a choir of angels. And I, this is one of my favorites. I love this song so much. And it has a really good false ending. Those usually really annoy me, like, hello, Suspicious Minds. But this song (laughs) is just so happy and cheerful that I love that it comes back for a while. You can immediately identify this as a George written song. Like oh, I, 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 even before, like I looked it up, I was like, "Oh yeah, this is George." Even though it sounds nothing like one of George's Beatles songs, and I think, I think it's interesting that he has such a distinctive solo style, especially with the slide guitar. Uh, but he just never really fully fleshed it out into his into its own thing. Yeah, I like it. I don't like it as much as Amanda does. Um, the thing about it definitely being a solo Harrison. See what I did there? Harrison, huh? huh? Yeah, you're um, the first person who has ever come up with that word. What? Um, <laughs> the, fa- the, the fact that it's clearly a, a solo Harrison song, you know, maybe with some contributions around the edges from Lynn, um, makes it for me that it doesn't quite fit in with my ideal of what I'm looking for from the album. It is really good, though. All the details that Amanda uh, mentioned are are what they are. I, I, I really am a sucker for Harrison's um guitar style around this time mm-hmm. as well so i'm, I'm not gonna complain about it uh, it's it's one that where i always end up enjoying it more in the moment than i remember like i never slot this in my mind as one of the major highlights but then it comes and it's like oh yeah that was a lot of fun yeah this is to me it's another great harrison song oh harris song oh, i get it Um, (laughs) George had an amazing creative renaissance in the late 1980s, and it's a joy to to hear him at his best. Uh, The song, I think, as John alluded to, it doesn't have the world's greatest radio hook that that sticks with you, but it's effervescent the whole way through. And as Amanda pointed out, Jeff Lynne just kills it on backing vocals. He's the least iconic Wilbury, but he's the glue that holds a lot of these songs together. All right, let's move on to Margarita. all over the place and is basically like a bunch of experimentation that has a normal song just popping up from time to time. And honestly, the the parts that sound like a normal song are the least interesting to me. Like, I really enjoy all the weird stuff in between, and I'd be quite happy to just leave out the Dylan parts. 
And it, back when Ben was running his eye-torturing lime green review site, he called <laughs> the song. Ah, my eyes! Yeah, <laughs> he called the song mind-bending, and that is still the best word I've ever found to describe it. Thanks. That was really good, Ben. I forgot, but thank you. Yeah, <laughs> this is not really the kind of thing you would expect on an album like this, and it's pretty great. Well, it will surprise none of you to find that this is one of my favorites on the album. Uh, I, I admire that. Jeff Lynne's restraint in turning only one song on the album into an ELO song because I would have been <laughs> fine with him doing that for all ten songs, but I'm also fine with what Traveling Goldberry's Volume 1 actually turned out as. So, uh, But there's, yeah, there's like a looseness to it. Like the songs on this album are generally... Uh, like they're very warm and friendly, but they're also really, really rigidly structured for the most part. Uh, and, and this is the only one where you never really know what's happening next. And I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. This is a small song. It's a teeny tiny song, but it's one of my favorites on the album. It's it's just so catchy and fun. And I'd even say mind bending. Um, <laughs> I, I'd go so far as to call it a pop masterpiece. It's an empty, shallow, vacuous pop masterpiece. Uh, it's it's the most purely fun song on the album to me. John, what about you? So I'm a little surprised that none of you noticed or mentioned that the beginning of this song sounds exactly like early 80s Who or Solo Pete Townsend. Like every time that that opening yeah. comes in, I instinctually sing both You Better You Bet and Let My Love Open the Door. Whoa. I, I caught that for the first time today, but I'm glad you you said it. Like, it's impossible for me not to sing that along with Yeah. That. Well, I didn't write a book about The Who. I don't know about Ben's excuse. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, like, I, I, I really like this song. Um, I really like all the, just all the stuff that's thrown into it. I, I love those guitar parts that that pop up so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the, the brassy elements that are thrown in. And it's fascinating to me that they decided that this was going to be a delight song. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, to the extent you could call it any single person's song, it would be Dylan's, huh? Yeah, like it's like okay, but, but again, like that's that's again goes to what I really like about this album is just this this alchemical mixture of elements that where you go, huh? They're they're going to throw these together, and you go, oh, that worked. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This 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 was an absolute delight. Oh, see, before I realized that Rattled was a Jeff Lynne lead vocal, this to me was clearly the Jeff Lynne song on the album, even if he doesn't sing lead. Like, it feels mm. most of any song like he's, like, conducting everyone, uh, even if he's the producer for the whole album. Yeah. But again, like, that's, that's, when you get on here, you get an ELO-ish song, sung by Bob Dylan. (laughs) (laughs) Like, where else in the universe are you going to get that? My favorite element of this song is those bits where Jeff Lynne is just kind of murmuring, and I have absolutely no idea what he's saying. I can't understand a word of it, but the rhythm of his words and the little hint of a melody is just really charming. I like that this is one of the rare times when George Harrison's slide guitar kind of fits his bitter, acerbic personality. Like, oh, it's so good! <laughs> yeah, like normally, you know, George in interviews was very guarded and pointed and, and incredibly clever and cutting but then you and have he's his hilariously funny right and but then you have his slide guitar which is wistful and beautiful and, and like the guitar is singing and this is one of the rare george harrison guitar solos that sounds like george harrison mm-hmm and, you know, what I've always thought was really wild is he's known for that slide guitar 
But he didn't develop that until after the Beatles were over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was saying during, like, Heading for the Light, that there's this, like, there's this entire, like, solo Harrison style that I feel just never really got its time for whatever Mm -hmm. reason. I've always thought the guitar solo in something really wants to be slide. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I think he was fulfilling his destiny when... Delaney, I think it was Delaney and Bonnie taught him how to play the slide guitar. Yeah, if he had written that song five years later, it would have been slide. Yeah. So why don't you slide? <laughs> oh, <preach>. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's move on to the second to last song on the album, Tweeter and the Monkey Man. Hell yeah, let's. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Stop checking Tweeter, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could. God, what I could get done if I stopped checking Twitter. <laughs> Twitter and the monkey man were hard up for cash. They stayed up all night selling cocaine and hash. To an undercover cop who had a sister named Jan. For reasons unexplained, she loved the monkey man. Twitter was a boy scout before she went to Vietnam. And found out the hard way nobody gives a damn. They knew that they'd find freedom just across the Jersey line. So they hopped into a stolen car, took Highway 99. Here we have a Bob Dylan story song, but he's still a Wilbury, so it's a pretty goofy Bob Dylan story song. (laughs) No social justice messages here. This is not Hurricane. This is just a weird little tale about a couple of drug dealers being chased by an undercover cop whose sister Jan is in love with one of the drug dealers despite being married to a racketeer named Bill. Jan has issues. Sure. Also, this song is just packed with little Bruce Springsteen references, but it's a little hard to tell whether it's satire or tribute. I I think it's more tribute since it all seems to be in good humor, but you can make up your own mind about that. More than a little bit of pot and kettle to that. Yeah. But I guess people were calling Springsteen like the new Dylan, so. Whatever the case may be, the song is catchy as hell with a really great guitar hook. The chorus is absolutely fantastic. I think this is just... Terrific. It is a fantastic song. And there is also a cover of this one from 1993 by a Canadian band called Headstones, who stripped out all the bits that make it interesting and turned it into a generic early 90s rocker. Accurate description. That is a recording. Yeah, I, I was shocked the first time I heard it on the radio up here and realized what it was. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, I made you all listen to it. Sorry about that. Mm. And another really weird thing about that cover, they changed the line, in Jersey, anything's legal as long as you don't get caught, to in Kingston, anything's legal, which makes no sense at all, since all the other references in the song are still New Jersey. It's not like they changed the rest of it to Ontario. <laughs> and Kingston, for those of you who didn't listen to our Tragically Hip episode, is a city in Ontario that is famous for its university and its prisons. Oh, This would have made a pretty good Tragically Hip cover there. You know, it would have. And really, the only negative thing I have to say about the song is a lot of the rhymes are really tortured, but I don't really care. (laughs) John, what do you think of this one? Oh, this one's so good. This is 
at the time, this was the best um, song that Dylan had put on an album, uh, on an officially released album in years. Like, there are some things that he did in the 80s that had made it into, like, his, his the bootleg series or recordings that were on par-ish with this. But this was much better than um, anything that had been on a proper studio album that's probably going back to Slow Train Coming. Yeah, like, it's, like, the, the, the I like the surreality of the lyrics, even as he's stuffing all the all this, clearly going out of his way to stuff all the Springsteen images they can into it. But like he'd done story songs like this in the past, he just hadn't done it in a long time, mm-hmm. and he he still had a knack for it because again, like there's there's nothing overbearing for it. You feel like something important and dangerous is happening, but you're not entirely sure why, Mr. Jones, because mm-hmm. it's Bob Dylan. Yeah. And and that's what he's really really good at doing is is creating just creating a sense of an idea of an emotion without actually completely letting you in. And yeah, with the you have the the pounding but not over bearing drums, fantastic arrangement on the horns of the keyboards and the mm-hmm. guitars. Um, it's hard for me to pick between this and handle with care is my favorite on the album, but this would be right at the top. Mm. Rich, how about you? Well, I love never saw them when they're standing, never saw them when they fell, which is a great bit of BS, like sort of a if if the walls fell and nobody heard them, did they ever exist? Like a bit of circular thinking. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And as for the song, I feel like uh, I feel like this is a whole sequencing thing, like the sort of show stopping late in the album story song that isn't really the album's musical peak necessarily, Mm -hmm. but is very engrossing and striking. Uh, The song I'm thinking of is, uh, well, you'll like this, Amanda, the uh, the Mariner's Revenge song from uh, from Picker by the Decemberists. Oh, yeah. You may not remember me. I was a child of three and you a lad of 18. But I remember you and I will relate to you how our history's in a wheel. Yeah, and that one has just a little scrap of a song right after it and the one coming after this is much more substantial. But yeah, it's like it, the mm-hmm. sequencing is really, really good here. Yeah, yeah, it's it's exactly in the right point on the album. Yeah. Well, the thing that that's really also really jumps out is if you look at the track lengths on everything else on this album, everything is like in the three to three and a half ish mm-hmm. uh, minute range, and you just get used to that as the range, and then all of a sudden you get this five and a half minute uh, mini epic just thrown in at the end, and like you get a clear sense of like something important, even though it's complete nonsense. Mm-hmm. And important nonsense is, to a large extent, like was was Bob Dylan's bread and butter, and I mean that in a, I mean that in a very very affectionate way. Like that's largely what he he made his bones on, and it really really works here. But yeah, I like this one mostly as an experience, like going to the theater. This one's very very popular, but musically, I've always preferred the more sprightly songs, like the sure. two that directly mm-hmm. surround it. Yeah. Now, everything you guys say about the song is true. The arrangement, the the twangy guitar, the chorus is good, although I've never thought it had anything to do with the verses. It's almost like two different songs. But they are actually. <laughs> yeah, it, I just I don't like it. The, the Springsteen references are funny, but I think to, to Amanda's question earlier, they sound mean spirited to me, like way more satire. <laughs> oh, I was than doing making fun of Springsteen. <laughs> he's making fun of Springsteen here. I mean, he's going for blood at least a little bit. And I don't like that vibe. It sounds smug. I mean, I think as, as you guys said, you know, he probably did get annoyed in the 70s. Oh, this guy's supposed to be the new me. 
uh, <laughs> but it's it's mean spirited, and I would take Springsteen over Dylan any day. Hmm. I was actually thinking about you when I said that because you've you've mentioned that before that you thought this was a more or cruel Springsteen target than than I think anybody else I know seems to. <laughs> I, I I could be wrong about it, but that's it, fair. It's totally fair. All right. Well, we've reached the last song on the album. End of the line. <laughs> songs that cut through the, the numbing effect of two different antidepressants and I just really love this one. Well it's alright Even if the say you're wrong Well it's alright Sometimes you gotta be strong Well it's alright As long as you got so much to lay Well it's alright Every day it's becoming a cliche, but Jeff sounds so good there. You guys, this is my very favorite song of all time. Wow. Hmm. Woo! It. We made it. <laughs> the this this that was the other reason I wanted to talk about this album, and I'm going to be honest with you guys. There is a decent chance that I will cry talking about the song because just of how much I love it. And those chances got just got to 100%. Here I go. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's great. It is... And we got that on Zoom video. <laughs> <laughs> Which will be locked in the vault for all time. It's already up on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, really difficult for me to convey exactly how much I adore this song and why every single thing about it makes me so happy. This this particular guitar sound, the optimistic lyrics, the voices of all these singers I love, plus Bob Dylan, the overall message that we we all just need to be doing our best to to find our way while being good to the people around us. It is this is an absolutely perfect song. That's great. I'm gonna calm down. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this is a perfect ending song, like sort of the equivalent of that like number at the end of the concert where everyone's on stage and like jumps in and out with a line or two. But the thing is that like that kind of song usually sucks. It's usually total fluff. It usually <laughs> barely even exists. And um, end of the line is perfect. Yeah, I love this one. It's so fun. I really like the fact that um, like after you, it was mentioned earlier that Dylan was unofficially the lead singer of the band, but he's the only person who doesn't get a, a featured vocal in this song. Like, he's mm -hmm. very, very happy to just blend into the ensemble. Like, I, I don't think he had any objections to that whatsoever. Yeah. And he was surprisingly good at it. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it, there's just so much pure joy. But, like, it's, it, it's not numbing joy. It, it's not sappy. It's not like what Rich uh, described that most songs like this would be. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, there's something very, very deep and earnest 
about it. And yeah, it's it's impossible for me to imagine this album ending in any other way. Yeah. Everything you guys said. I mean, I, I had notes on this song, but I, I realized none of them mean anything compared to the feeling I got just when hearing that muffled clip a, a moment ago. I mean, I, I, I joked, but yeah, just I'm, I'm on two antidepressants and they, they keep me functioning, but they also numb a lot of emotions, um, which I think is just a, a common side effect. And mm-hmm. it's the very rare song and the very rare anything that can cut through that and just like put a huge smile on my face and just really make me feel. And I don't even know that I realized that this song was one of those things until just a second ago, but it just made me feel so good. So that's all I got on that one. Yeah. Yeah, And if someone were to ask me like 10 seconds that perfectly describe what Jeff Lynn's production style sounds like, it would be that guitar chime at the beginning of the song. Yep. Yeah. It just cuts through all of the fog. It does. It does. And John, I loved what you said about the song being earnest. I think that's a really good descriptor for it, but it's not earnest to the point of being cheesy. They're just very, very sincere. And they just, they, they tell you over and over that it's all right. I know this is coming down from what I said a minute ago, but that guitar chime, isn't that the opening riff to I'm looking through you? Oh, sh- it is. Because George, <laughs> George just cannot help Georging. Oh, I can't believe I missed if that. If it's not exact, it's extremely close. Oh, man. But everything else that I've we said about- our Beatles cards. <laughs> No, because the song is so great, it's easy not to notice that. Or it, it no. I mean, I, I, I did want to point that out, but I, everything else I said about the song is is a hundred times more important. One of my very favorite TV moments ever was when Parks and Recreation used the song in the finale. I think a lot of people thought that finale was kind of cheesy and lame, but I loved it. I really liked that everyone got a happy ending, even Larry, and this was absolutely the perfect song to use to fit that theme. And I absolutely cried <laughs> when the song started playing in that episode. And there's also a really good video for this song featuring the band on that train that they were waiting for in the Handle With Care video. And they're just sitting around in this train car playing the song. And Roy Orbison had recently died when they made the video. And he is very sweetly represented by a guitar sitting in a rocking chair with a photo of him nearby. It's really, really good. Do the videos on the next album continue the story? You know, I've never looked, but I hope so. Maybe they were on their way to the poorhouse. With this group, I doubt it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seems unlikely. Amanda, what concluding thoughts do you have about the album? This album was basically made for me. I tend to be a pretty cheerful and optimistic person by nature. And this is a collection of cheerful, optimistic songs made by a group of people who are clearly having a really good time doing it. And not to mention, I'm a fan of all of these guys individually to varying degrees. And it was spearheaded by George Harrison, who I don't think I've mentioned before was my first husband. (laughs) and who I still love deeply. I am just, I'm predisposed to like anything that he was involved in. And this is really, like you guys said, some of his very best work. I don't think there's anything on this album that's especially groundbreaking. And the group's existence is something of a novelty, but who cares? These are all really good songs performed well by extremely talented musicians who love what they're doing 
And that's enough to make this one of my very favorite albums. Yeah, this it's a, a light, breezy album. It's intentionally like that. And it can sound slight, but it absolutely isn't. The best moments are deeply profound because these guys just couldn't help being great even when they were goofing around. Rich, what about you? I don't really have any sweeping conclusions to draw about this album, which is impressive. Like five rock musicians of this stature actually managed to come together and produce an album that sounds like they're just hanging out and having fun. It's Mm -hmm. it's wild. And you know what? This is garage rock. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yeah, this is the next Nuggets episode. Yeah, just, only it was Bob back. Dylan's garage. <laughs> just needs fuzz guitar. Yeah. Uh, John, what about you? The thing that really strikes me about this album is that, you know, even if, if Roy Orbison had lived longer, this album could not have happened basically any later than when it happened. Mm-mm. Because once you got into the 90s, um, the idea of this group coming together would have been deemed so immediately uncool that everybody would have just like, like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this. Everyone's laughing at us. Like this happened like at the right at the last moment in time when people allowed themselves to not be just people in general were willing to accept this kind of, you know, this is just enjoyable for the sake of being enjoyable project without having to like nitpick it and analyze it and say like, why is this insufficiently hip? And I'm glad this happened like in the exact, it, it found the exact window when it could have happened. And it's, it's just such a delight that it happened. Like the history of rock music would not be that different if this project had not happened, but it would be lessened. Yeah. Like there's something to be said about fun. There's something to be said about joy. And it's, again, like I said earlier, it, there's something okay about being earnestly happy. And again, this is something that would not necessarily be allowed in a few years. Yeah. Thank God this happened um, before irony. Yeah. Well, they, exactly. could have, they could have rebranded for the 90s as the Traveling Wilburys of Pain. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then with, with the album, what, something also that really strikes me with this album is it's, you know, it, it's not perfect. It's got some weak spots, but it's sequenced so well yeah. that whatever weak spots are there, like, are masked. Like, they don't affect the overall impression that much. And what I found like the first few times, especially that I listened to this album is that I would finish it. I would just have a deep seated urge to just go back and listen to it again. And you know, that was the same urge that I had when I was first getting into a lot of my Beatles albums. And it was, it was really, I really enjoyed just the feeling of like, of having to do that with an album again. Like there are some albums that happens with, but not that many. And even though there there are albums I like, there are albums I like more than this that I didn't have that feeling with. When I was getting acquainted with. See, I'm I'm very happy to have have learned this album over the last couple of years. I'm glad you did. And honestly, one of my favorite memories associated with you guys was when I picked a whole bunch of you up at the airport in Detroit. Yeah. And we got in my car and volume three happened to be playing. Yep. And we all sang along with the traveling Wilburys on the way to the Airbnb. It was so fun. It was. All right. Amanda, if people like this album, and those are the only people I'd really want to know, uh, <laughs> what else might they like listening to? Well, obviously, Volume 3. There is no Volume 2 because, again, these guys are goofballs, <laughs> and why would they go sequentially? <laughs> uh, volume 3 suffers from a lack of Roy Orbison, but it benefits from increased Tom Petty. 
There isn't. Yeah. yeah, there's nothing as good on there as the highlights on volume one, but it still has plenty of terrific songs, including the Tom Petty number Cool Dry Place, which is honestly one of my favorite Wilbur's tracks and one of my favorite Tom Petty songs. Well, I woke up this morning, the place was such a wreck. I couldn't reach the bathroom, thought I better clear the deck. I tried to call the lawyer and asked him what to do. He referred me to his doctor who referred me back to you. And when you checked the manual, you kept inside the case. He said, put it in a cool, dry place. And plus, most of their individual records from around this time are worth checking out. I have no idea what Bob Dylan was up to around now because I am a fraud. (laughs) But the rest of them all appeared on each other's albums for a while. And Jeff Lynne produced a whole lot of them. And maybe the most, not the best, but maybe the most notable is Roy Orbison's Mystery Girl that Rich mentioned earlier, which he made with Jeff Lynne and Tom Petty and several of the Heartbreakers, actually and was widely praised as his comeback album at the time, and he died one month after it was released. Yeah, and there were actually a couple tracks on it produced by our friend T-Bone Burnett. Yeah, and he had a hit single off of that album with You Got It, which I suspect is a, oh yeah, that song for (laughs) a lot of people. Definitely. One look from you I drift away I pray that you On the uh, Jeff Lynne albums produced around this time, if you're not familiar with Tom Petty's Full Moon Fever from 1989, it, it picks right up from this one. And you even have a little bit of that old trademark George Harrison slide guitar yeah. on I Won't Back Down, which he guests on. I learned that today. Get yourself out to your record store and buy Full Moon Fever today. <laughs> yeah. Lots of hits on this one, but I'm going to clip a single that you don't hear on the radio as much. It's called A Face in the Crowd, and it's unrelated to the 1957 film starring Andy Griffith and Patricia Neal. <laughs> Before all of this Ever went down In another place Another town You were a judge A face in the crowd You know, the single off that album that I wish I heard more is You're So Bad. John, what would you recommend? I've got a couple recommendations. So I'm thinking more uh, in terms of albums that I, I think that are in the spirit of the Wilburys project of of effortless, great music uh, from, from artists I like that aren't trying too hard. Uh, so what I want to mention is uh, Bob Dylan's 2001 album, Love and Theft. It's one of the few albums that where you hear him not really having to work through any particular demons, especially after uh, Time Out of Mind in the late 90s. It seems like he worked through a lot of issues and said, oh, well, I, I'm free just to write great, fun songs. And it's an album of just effortless little 
cute tunes that just happened to be him at his songwriting peak, at least as much as he could be in his 60s. is is another uh petty lynn uh collaboration so the album full moon fever uh, tends to get get a lot of attention i really like that one and and uh into the great wide open gets uh, uh its dues as well i think that's really good but the one i want to mention that i think is in many ways the the true spiritual successor to this is the 2006 album highway companion mm, good point I, I, I yeah i i really like this it's it, it's so this is uh this is a Tom Petty uh, with Lynn collaboration, and there's no particular message. It's just a thing of really writing good driving music. Mm-hmm. For me, tra- the Traveling Wilburys Volume One is a Hall of Fame driving album, and and Highway Companion was largely designed to be songs for road trips. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds a little trite until you actually listen to it. It's like, oh yeah, this is actually perfect for that. Yeah. So in terms of yeah, so in terms of an album that I think largely. Uh, captures the spirit of the Wilburys, even though it's it's a slightly different context. I think that that's one to look for. Yeah, and actually, now that I think about it, Big Weekend is basically a traveling Wilburys song, isn't it? Left a tip for the maid and I packed up my guitar Dropped my key on the counter Rented a car Gonna hook up with them later And go hit the bar I never got around to listening to that one. I think I will now. It's good. Before I make my recommendation, I just want to point out that, you know, the Jeff Lynn in 1991 produced an album for Del Shannon, you know, 60s rock hero who sang Runaway and and who was a big deal to all these guys. And they even covered Runaway, I believe, as a B-side. So I've only heard, I think, one track from the Del Shannon album, but it's really good. And it sounds just like a Jeff Lynn production. And Tom Petty and Mike Campbell from the Heartbreakers are on it, so it's got a little of that Wilburys feel to it. But for my song, I'm gonna echo Amanda and go with something from Volume Three, uh, the song "New Blue Moon." Mm. There's nothing conceptually brilliant here. It's just a, a pop country song with a beautiful chorus sung by some of the best guys in the business. I think melodic credit here goes to Jeff Lynn, the unsung Wilbury, uh, until this episode. Jeff wasn't as deep or grizzled or mystical as the other guys, but he could bring the pop hooks. And these guys needed that 20 years after their various heydays when they were sometimes struggling to recapture their glory days. And no, that wasn't a cruel barbed Bruce Springsteen reference. 
Just about the most praise Jeff Lynn has gotten in any traveling Wilburys discussion, I think. Yeah, yeah. but I like that we well, bring him I think, up. Yeah, well, and he's got of the of the band. I think he's got the least individual name recognition. Yeah, I, I mean, he gets plenty of credit for masterminding the whole thing, but I think his like little individual musical contributions are really oh, yeah. significant throughout the album. And yeah, I'm glad I'm glad we focused on it. Yeah, when you look at what everybody did, like. There's a list of the instruments that everybody played, and then there's Jeff Lynne, who plays like 40 more than anybody else. <laughs> what a guy. <laughs> Perhaps we will cover Electric Light Orchestra eventually. Perhaps. Maybe. So, coming up on our next episode, Will is serving up a slice of Camper Van Beethoven's Key Lime Pie for us. Careful, it might be laced with something. Oh. <laughs> Dark. <laughs> Sorry, I wrote that. Roll credits. Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy Volume 1 and the other album by the Traveling Wilburys at your local Sam Goody or the usual places such as Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, and Amazon. We've also made you a Spotify playlist that you can find on our website, discordpod.com, featuring the album and every other song that we clipped. You can follow Discord and Rhyme at DiscordPod on Twitter for news and updates and on Instagram for pictures of our pets, often with records on them. Check out my book, All the Days of His Life, listening to David Bowie song by song on Amazon. Visit John's two-decade-old music review archive at johnmcfarrenmusicreviews.org. Fair warning, he rates albums in hexadecimal. This album gets a B! which is the worst rating. It's the same one the Big Express got. Ah. (laughs) Editing is by Rich, and special thanks to Producer Mike for production and original music, which you can hear more of at otherleadingbrand.bandcamp.com. See you next album, and be ever wonderful.